Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dunn. We are the hosts of Origin Story, the podcast that unpacks the history behind the ideas, the people and the events that shape political discourse today. And we are back for season five. We're kicking off with a two-parter on George Orwell, the man, the work, the ideas. We follow him from Burma to Spain, through Second World War London, to the writing of his masterpieces Animal Farm and 1984, and how their legacy is used and misused today. That's Origin Story Season 5, coming now from anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Tinker Tailor Leave a Spy edition of Romaniacs, in which our panel confessed their mystery past and their possible connections to the deep state. What? <laughs> I, I wasn't briefed about that. <laughs> I'm Rory Stewart, innit? I'm Dorian Linsky, and this week we'll be looking at the last men standing in the Tory leadership contest with a couple of our regulars. She's an actor, director, comedian and functioning Brexaholic. Welcome back to Ingrid Oliver. Hello. Would you believe you just enjoyed a relaxing trip to Naples? Did anything amusing and or interesting related to Brexit occur during your travels? You know it did. You know <laughs> it did. Um, all right, here we go. Uh, anecdote. Uh, I, so I booked a trip to Naples last week, impromptu trip, uh, to get away from Brexit and anxiety <laughs> generally. Um, and as I was boarding the plane, and I was looking for my seats on the ticket, and, and I... I saw where I was sitting and I looked at the person sitting next to my empty seat and I thought, oh my God, that's Daniel Hanan. <laughs> um, so I'm sitting next to Daniel Hanan for the, for, for the entire flight. And uh, as everyone listening will know, uh, you know, one of the architects of the Leave campaign, best friends with uh, Carswell and Cummings and all that lot. Um, so I sat next to him and sort of grappled with myself. <laughs> as did, he, to... did he appreciate that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he did. He thought it was odd. Um, but I, I was like, do I, I've got to say something. I've got to say something. I can't not, I can't ignore the fact that I'm sitting next to Daniel Hanan for the next two hours. And I follow him on Twitter, by the way. I, I have, I've definitely tweeted about him. Um, and so I I just, I end up just opening the free eye paper and, and reading about the Tory leadership contest, sort of tutting and humming and hawing, hoping that he would... That bite. would initiate, so, yeah, that he would bite, essentially, and he didn't. And I thought, fair enough, he's, you know, the man's going on holiday. I'm not going to start yapping at him about Brexit. So, but about, about half an hour in, we struck up a conversation, which he initiated. Um, and so so we just talked about Italy and holidays in general. And then um, and then we started talking about Brexit. And at that point, I had to tell him that I knew who he was and that I was part of a podcast called Romaniacs. Um, Did you invite him on? Do you know what? He... <laughs> It was really funny because there was a flicker in his eye at that point where he, I could see him thinking, is this a setup?" And <laughs> the panic of what he's just, he'd just been talking about. And um, I sort of assured him that I wasn't, gonna, I wasn't recording the conversation. It was fine. But um, yeah, we then talked for, for a further maybe half an hour about Brexit. And then he asked to follow me on Twitter. And I had to panically, while I was talking to him, go through all my tweets and find <laughs> the one where I'd mocked something that he'd said um, and had to delete it in front of him, which is really bad. I feel really bad about that now because he was very pleasant, as, as, he, as they would be. Has he recanted, though? No, no. And that's well, the thing. Still Do you know what it was? We talked, about Brexit for half, <laughs> we talked about Brexit for half an hour and we both, in the end, were just tired because it was that thing of, like, I'm never going to change his mind. Mm. He's never going to change my mind. And that's where you leave it. So then we talked about pasta instead because it was safer ground. I don't think he should be allowed to eat pasta. 
Wow, that's <laughs> and listen, <laughs> you're you've come to the I right take podcast a hard with line your on this. <laughs> but yeah, listen, you know, if, if you're listening, Daniel, um, this is not. I, I yeah, it was very delightful to meet you, but um, yeah, we, we we have to agree to disagree quite strongly in the strongest terms. And I hope you enjoyed your trip to Naples. But not that much. (laughs) And it's hello to Alex Andreu, actor, director, commentator. Alex, have you ever found yourself sitting next to a prominent Brexiter while en route to a capital of European civilization? I once flew to, um, I think it was Berlin, and I was sitting next to this uh, elderly, very rich woman that was carrying a tiny quilted uh, pet case with a really angry animal inside, which I am convinced was Marc Francois. So, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, before we, before we, we move on, um, immediately after we finished recording last week's show, Chukramana joined the Lib Dems um, on his exciting whirlwind tour of Britain's political parties. It's been a journey, as they say. And, um, and now his former BFF, Anna Subri, is attacking him on Twitter. Um, this is this has been a and oh and they've changed their name again to the Independent Group for Change or TIGFOG. Um, <laughs> oh my God! Really? Have they definitely done that? Have they yes. definitely? Oh God! I mean, they don't call it TIGFOG. Yeah. <laughs> I don't we know why? Will, but they, they should. <laughs> we will. Though. Um, this is, I mean, this is quite horrible to watch, isn't it? This sort of fallout, public fallout. It's it's a difficult thing, though, isn't it? They attempted to do a sort of dive with a really high multiplier and hit their head on the board and then it just it ended up being a belly flop and it's just horrific. But the, the point is that they were attempting to do something that is incredibly difficult uh, and I still give them loads of credit for that. And I'm also not sure that the churn from it, from the sort of plate shifting that's going on, is over either. But I think the mistake they made was in trying to turn it into a political party. You know, the only thing that those politicians agreed on really was Brexit. So the mistake was trying to not only turn it into a political party, but also a political party that was meant to exist beyond Brexit. Mm. It doesn't make sense for Anna Soubry and Luciana Berger to be in the same party. You know, they have wildly different policies on the economy, for example. Um, But they agree on Brexit. So if they were going to do a party, surely they should have just called it the Remain Party and then disbanded after they stopped Brexit, which they I'm sure they would have done. (laughs) Um, And then they could have seen, you know, where the political landscape, you know, what the political landscape looked like. It's a good example of what not to do. Mm. I don't think they did anything right. Mm. Apart from post Nando's, Nando's was the peak. <laughs> Nando's, <laughs> Nando's is, always is always the peak. Oh God, no, we can't say the same thing. <laughs> uh, that, that mystery voice is this week's special guest, Caroline Criado Sorry, Perez. Yes, I've been talking before being introduced. <laughs> One of the uh, the forces behind the newly announced March for Change, which is taking place in London on Saturday, twentieth of July. She's a noted feminist writer and campaigner who first became a public figure when she helped to get Jane Austen on the £10 note. She's the author of the best-selling Invisible Women, a title which doubles as a fair description of the Tory leadership debates. Hmm. Ooh, nice. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for saying that out loud. That um, is OK. Hello, Caroline. Welcome hello. to Maniacs. Um, so our listeners like marching for anything, really. Do they? Um, I hate marching. But tell us, Off-brand, I know. But. What, tell us what the March for Change is all about and why it has got you over your marchophobia. 
Um, well, I mean, it, it's not going to be the first march I've ever gone on. My first march was the Women's March. That was the one that got me off over my marchophobia because I was just so angry and horrified by Trump. And I suppose equally, I'm angry and horrified by Brexit. Um, and, you know, I think that there is a case for marches. It can feel like, oh, God, here we go, another march. Here's another letter um, that we're just doing the same things over and over again and no one's listening. But there is something so powerful about people appearing in the flesh together um, and uniting over a, a single cause. Um, and having now been on a few marches, I do I do feel that. It's more the sort of the slow pace hurts my back is kind of why I'm anti-march. Um, Good banner. <laughs> Move faster, you <laughs> bastards. Um, so, I mean, the, thing, the, the point of the March for Change is that we wanted there to be an avowedly pro-European movement out there. Um, there are so many people who need that, who want that, who are saying, no, it's not just about saying that, you know, no deal is bad or that, you know, Theresa May has handled this appallingly, both of which are true. It's about making the case that they were too scared to make in the 2016 referendum that actually there are loads of really great things about being part of the EU, about being part of Europe, um, and that it's good for the UK, you know, rather than just being all about how, you know, there's going to be a horrible fall in GDP, which no one really cares about because no one really understands it anyway. Um, but being able to talk positively, give people something to fight for, give them something to believe in. Um, that was sort of the impetus behind it, because mm. we felt that the grassroots, who are amazing, by the way, you know, and there are this huge force who have been completely squandered by the people who have been, quote unquote, leading the the charge for the anti-Brexit charge. Um, and that's incredibly frustrating because here are all the people who are this total riposte to, oh, you're all a bunch of metropolitan elite wankers who, work, who live in Westminster. Um, actually, there's this incredibly diverse and passionate grassroots movement that just isn't being put front and, you know, front and centre of the Remain movement. Um, so that is certainly what I feel very yeah. passionately about. And, and it's a, a totally unequivocal response also to the narrative coming out that everyone whether they voted leave or remain, just want to get on with it. Yeah. They don't. I don't. I look at every single day we're still in the EU as a big bloody bonus. Why um, march for change? Because, I mean, Farage talked a lot about change uh, on the campaign trail. Uh, Tig Fock yeah. uh, still like change. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not as much as they used to when they were called change. Um, so why not sort of march for remain, march mm. for Europe? Yeah. Well... I think there's a sort of couple of things going on there. Um, partly, it's not wanting to allow people like Farage to uh, claim ownership of words like change, because actually he doesn't want change in a real sense. He wants things to be, you know, more like America, to get worse than they already are, but along the same same lines. Um, and I think what a lot of, and certainly what our sort of faction, our pro-European faction wants, is for the UK to change, you know, to recognise that there were issues with the UK, with UK politics, with Westminster politics, that were part of the reason by, why some people voted Brexit. You know, things like um, money being concentrated in certain parts of the country and not getting to other parts of the country, ironically, it being EU money that supported those parts of the country. Um, you know, huge inequality, austerity, all these very, very good reasons for people to stick two fingers up to the establishment. Um, and so 
and again, I think that was the mistake with 2016 was that the Remain referendum campaign was about saying, no, you've got it. Everything's great now. And it's, it's just going to get really, really bad if yeah. you vote to leave. Whereas lots of people felt, well, things are already bad. So it's about acknowledging, yes, things are not great right now. Things are pretty bad right now, actually, mm. for a lot of people. But staying in Europe is the way to change that. Well, Caroline's going to be with us throughout the podcast and we'll return to the whole marching thing later, as well as depressing new research, is there any other kind, which shows that <laughs> leaders and remainers are more hostile to compromise than ever. No, they're not. Fuck you. <laughs> cheer up. We've got the winner of the Marc Francois Battle Action War Stories writing competition later as well. All that and Am more... I the winner? I went up against him once. <laughs> it was very fun. All that and more after these messages from Ingrid. If you're travelling throughout Europe this summer, and of course you are, you're a cosmopolitan citizen of nowhere, why not flaunt your opinions with our new range of ultra-Romainer t-shirts available now from the Romaniacs online shop? If only I'd been wearing one when I met Daniel Hanan, I would have avoided that whole awkward moment where I unmasked myself like a supervillain. There's also a range of ultra-Romainer coffee mugs in red or blue, perfect for starting exciting conversations in the office. <laughs> at parent-teacher evenings or with visiting aged relatives. Search Shop Romaniacs to see our wares. Order now and you'll have them in time for the March for Change. Long-term Patreon backers get a special discount on our new merchandise and if you pledge to support the show, a world of benefits will be yours. You'll get the podcast a day early, a weekly column from our panellists and other extras including mugs, T-shirts and our monthly extra podcast. Ask Romaniacs, depending on which tier you choose. Just search Romaniacs Patreon or visit our Facebook or Twitter pages to find out more. That's Shop Romaniacs for the new t-shirts and mugs and Romaniacs Patreon to support the show. It's week two of Tory Hunger Games and as we record on Wednesday <laughs> afternoon the field had narrowed to five candidates although by the time you hear this you should be down to four and then the final two even if you're listening to this a little later. Yeah. The BBC and Channel 4 debates gave us the chance to inspect the candidates that we won't be able to vote for unless we're members of the Conservative Party. Which I am. Still? Yeah. Are you? We'll come back to that later. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> when did you join? A couple of weeks ago to try and vote for the, the Tory oh, leader. Oh, but presumably you're not allowed to... We'll, we'll see. Well, I, don't, I don't know. Well, we, we think you might be. We think I might be allowed to. Really? Yeah. Oh, should I join? <laughs> you might be too late. Let's <laughs> 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 just all join. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, one thing that seemed to be missing from the debate was... Uh, the argument that Brexit shouldn't happen at all. Um, so there was there was no real yeah. main argument, despite the kind of weird myth that Rory Stewart is a, is a Remainer, mm. yeah. having voted for a Brexit deal He's three not, times. Yeah, and, um, th that that never seemed to be that. Sort of, that seemed to be just like a given. Yeah. Well, it's, their manifesto, I suppose, was uh, was of leaving. I think no, but the questioning in the, in the questioning yeah. there didn't seem to be a kind of why not. Well, I mean, that's the danger with the the Tory leadership contest is that we now end up for six weeks debating whether it's better to have hardest possible Brexit or completely batshit crazy Brexit. Mm. And somehow we must pick one of those two sides and cheer for mm. it. And you find yourself kind of drawn to the le least insane person there and going, mm, he's talking a lot of sense. But, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's all encapsulated by the, the analogy he used about being in a room with uh, only one door out of it, and he's trying to unlock it while, while others are trying to run at the walls, uh, saying, you know, Parliament is the only route to get Brexit. Uh, but in truth, there is another door to the room, and it's the door we came in from, <laughs> you know, that is completely wide open still, and yet everyone seems to be focused on this idea that we must go forward. And which, by the way, the majority of the country actually wants. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, they, they're not even considering that. And no one seems to be asking them about it. 
But it's quite surreal that they're all pitching to... They didn't. It was like, who were they pitching to? Because they were pitching to the wider public, and to some extent, you know, like pretending they cared about other things. Um, but really, of course, we can't do anything about it until there's an uh, until the next general election. It so it's a surreal, odd format. Even the name of it, our next prime minister, I really took issue with. Mm. It's not my next prime minister. I, you know, technically, it is all of our next prime minister. I understand that, but it's obviously not. And it's and, chosen. And, and as a Conservative Party member, well, it's definitely, this is definitely prime my prime minister. <laughs> Who would I vote for, apart from anything else? I don't know, but anyway. But yeah, but the whole format, it was so odd, because it's like you're talking to essentially 160,000 Conservative Party members, but mm. you also, if there is a general election, you want to already get ahead of that game and sort of start appealing to, to other people. So it's a really weird balancing act where they have to sound vaguely moderate, but also dog whistly on hard Brexit enough that people will vote for them in the in the Tory membership. So yeah, it was very unsatisfying, well, I found. Boris Johnson was empty chaired on Channel 4, but then he was back, back, back for the BBC debate. The yeah. Um, did he did he do himself any favours? Did did you understand why he hadn't, you know, he decided to opt out of the first one? I, I mean, I don't know because I dislike the man so much that I can't, I'm not an objective judge of it. Uh, it. I mean, it drove me absolutely insane how he simply stonewalled anything Maitlis was mm. asking him or yeah. saying to him. He literally just ignored her Didn't and talked her. over her as if she went to the room, which I found. Just astounding that you know she's the chair of the debate. I think Caroline might find that less astounding. I do do find that less astounding, but I mean, I think also the thing that's so depressing about all of this is that you know that none of this is going to be a problem for him. You know, this I think it's 97% white, 79% male, 44% over the age of 65 um, membership are just going to vote for him anyway. It doesn't really matter what he does. These debates are a total waste of everyone's time. They are a sort of pantomime of democracy. Yeah. What do you think uh, Johnson's premiership will look like based on the way that he's, he's behaving now? Trump. I don't know, is the truth, because he's so chameleonic that um, it is impossible to uh, to judge what will be in his political interest and which way he will fl- flip-flop in, in three but, months. But from time. a Remain point of view, it's almost <clears throat> like his, his kind of flagrant narcissistic opportunism is like... Is is preferable to kind of like the mm. the dull fanaticism of like Dominic Raab. Mm. Oh, I'm, re- gla- I'm glad Dominic really Raab is gone. ram it through come what oh, may. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm glad Dominic Raab is gone because he's, you know... He he has the disadvantage of being both extreme and thick, which is a really dangerous combination. Um, so I, I would rather take someone opportunistic and intelligent than someone opportunistic and really dumb any day of the week and twice on Sunday. But I think Boris Johnson is opportunistic and dumb. I don't think he's dumb. I don't think he's dumb. I think he's clever. I think he's played this brilliantly, mm. actually. Well, I think he's he's got certain types of intelligence. You know, he's charismatic and he's able to riff and, you know, deliver a good line. But as for whether or not he's intelligent enough to actually work his way out of this... Oh, yeah, I agree. Don't think so. My my favourite moment in in that debate was when he said, you know, Gap 24, Article 24 or whatever, or whatever. Like, he he mentioned (laughs) Article 24, whatever, or whatever that thing is. Yeah, yeah, whatever that thing is. It is literally your job. If you want to be leader, I mean, I can can get away with that because I'm an actor on a podcast, but you are literally running to be the Prime Minister and you don't know what you're talking about. My my daughter couldn't sleep last night, so she came down and watched the... Toy debate. Wow. I said this will this will And then she really couldn't this will chill you out. She's Lucy Johnson goes, Well the kids at school, my generation would call him a waffler. 
I was like, you're right, but I don't think your generation has invented that word. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I, I think that's he definitely is that's a waffler. Amazing. Yeah. Waffler means what it's always meant, right? <laughs> I know. Not right. Some kind of new. No. Right. Okay. Just but checking. The, I thought maybe it did. No. There was a hugely revealing moment on Newsnight afterwards where they all sent their sort of surrogates, as as is now the the mm. custom, very Americanized. Um, today, interestingly, it, it was only Rory Stewart that was actually appearing on. Uh, TV news and radio programs answering questions. All the others had sent a sort of surrogate. Hunt sent a surrogate that was questioned so directly by Victoria... Um, Derbyshire? Victoria Derbyshire, thank you, that it, they cut away to a video, to a satellite link to someone else talking, and by the time they came back, she had left um, the studio. So anyway, the on Newsnight, they each had their surrogate, and you had Heseltine and Boris Johnson's dad. <laughs> and they were debating exactly the same issue uh, over this GAT24 nonsense. And Heseltine explained it very plainly. And Johnson Sr. turned around and went, oh, whatever. And and you yeah, could yeah. see, you could see exactly, where, <laughs> you know, the inheritance, the legacy that those two wings have come from. Well, well I, want to, I want to talk a little bit about, um, about Rory Mania. Because um, there's there's a lot of grumbling uh, on Twitter about these dastardly centrists swooning over, you know, a, a Tory and not a Remainer in any practical sense. <clears throat> but watching him in the debates, he was the only one who opposed no deal. He he spoke up for experts. He, he zoomed in on the details of Brexit and did actually what some journalists don't do, which is just like, what will your tariffs on cheese be? Hmm. Um, you didn't get any answers, but it was, it was quite fun to see him try. Um, and talked about addressing the socioeconomic problems that kind of contributed to the Leave victory. The crowd... Loved him, um, and in the Channel Four debate where there was an audience. Yeah, oh yeah, 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 the Channel Four debate, but also the um, the, the poll the, the morning after the BBC yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. He was the most most popular there. So does he? I mean, he won't win, uh, but does he represent? Unless the membership is entirely made up of people like Ingrid, fucking <laughs> <laughs> centrist entrists, centrist centrist entrists, a hard phrase. Does centrist? Uh, but... <laughs> Does he represent the sort of germ of a, of a less extremist Tory party in the future? I'm not sure. <clears throat> do, you, do you know what he does represent for me personally? It's funny, and, and we shouldn't. It's dangerous in politics when you look at people's personalities. But what I do see with Roy Stewart is somebody who, at least on the surface, seems willing to engage face to face with people and does oh, seem willing whether to, they like well, it or actually, not and actually extraordinarily after that debate the channel the channel uh, <laughs> does he have holograms of himself like how is it physically possible to be in all of those places at the same time but but like after the bbc debate last night you know he didn't do it brilliantly and and they, do you see the the footage uh, on and twitter and, and a journalist yeah, called yeah. him and said you're a bit lustrous and you know what i was and that is extraordinary in politics to, to even hear someone say do you know what hold my hands up i wasn't great i wasn't brilliant i wasn't the best in the world which is where the, the sort of machismo that, that is, is happening mm. in the debate generally um it is refreshing to see because it gives you hope that he might actually listen and that for me is quite an important quality he literally said you know i'm frail and flawed yeah which Great. is like, which compared to like Dominic Raab's kind of like, you know, hard man. Yeah. Oh routine. my God! Why is there so much blood? Yeah. The Marina Hyde. <laughs> that was that brilliant. Was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really funny. 
Oh, I lo- I, the one I loved was the, you know, the fact that Gove needs just a little bit of extra time to slip in the winning goal. <laughs> just the <laughs> image of that. I don't know if you heard it. He was saying, you know, sometimes in football games, if you're drawing, you need a little bit of extra time. Just oh my God. S- slot it home. Oh. And it's like, what? <laughs> stop, stop saying the word slot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but one of the, the reason Roy Stewart uh, will not win is, uh, as we saw, there's a terrifying YouGov poll which showed that Tory members, in order to get Brexit, would give up the following. Uh, Scotland, Northern <laughs> Ireland, the economy, the entire Tory party, and 39% would even accept Corbyn in number 10 if they got Brexit. Um, but it was so it... fascinating that Corbyn was the one thing, you're like, yeah. total mayhem. Oh, but not Corbyn. But even then, <laughs> but even then two in five. I mean, yes, it wasn't a majority, but it was like still two in five. Yeah. We're just like, yes, literally, we will have a, a socialist prime minister, a tanked economy and a crumbling union. In last night's debate, <laughs> I think it was mentioned once. No, Corbyn. Gove mentioned Gove a couple mentioned, of times. Gove, yeah, well, he was mentioned by one person. I yeah, yeah. Say. But Gove was the only person that went after... The opposition. Is it bad for Britain that the next prime minister is being chosen by a dangerous extremist sect that hates Britain? I mean, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's fundamentally anti-democratic. I mean, this is what makes me so angry. We've had three years now of this... Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Oh, yeah. Of this yeah. bullshit yeah, about the will of the people and citizens of nowhere and how Remainers just don't exist and it's undemocratic to go back to the people to get a final say on a referendum when the first one was so hopelessly flawed and people were lied to and electoral fraud happened. Uh, That's all totally undemocratic. But it's fine for our next prime minister to be chosen by 0.15% of the population and a deeply unrepresentative 0.15% at that. Are they Aaron Banks entryists? Or is it just the old membership has has just well, lost its mind in, from Brexit? Interestingly, a lot of uh, there were also statistics asking something like fifty percent of Tory members would be happy for Nigel Farage to lead the Conservative Party. So they're not. It's not even people. It's people not even from their own party that they would be happy to see leading the Conservative Party. And and also, if you're talking about breaking up the union, you're no longer a Conservative and Unionist part, you know, party member. You're you're something else. So. Whether it's entryism, I mean, if you look at the, the, the numbers, the Tory membership swelled by tens of thousands in the last year or two years. There's something going on there, unless it's all centrists like me, who are trying to be clever. Um, so we'll find out. I don't. They don't feel like class of conservatives to me in 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 the old tradition. It feels like something else, but it is something that has to be acknowledged that it does exist in our society. Well, I mean, they're not conservative. No. Objectively speaking, they're yeah. not mm. conservative because they're not for preserving a sort of status quo and slow, careful change, uh, you know, fiscal responsibility, mm-hmm. management of the economy and all of that stuff. They, they represent none of that. They want to take a sledgehammer to everything and see what comes out the other end. So in that, in that mm. sense, they're not conservative in any way. But I think what happened was the, the party was hollowed out over many years of its actual grassroots base and all that remained were effectively the people who were members by default of a previous generation and that's basically but it's, the... but it's funny that it's more it's more it's not funny it's horrible um <laughs> but it's like right, the, the member the tory membership is is it's much more extreme much more full of cranks than the labor membership oh. well the like, membership, statistically membership there, there, there's no yeah yeah, I mean that maybe 
maybe that's it. But you don't, I mean, it's a significant difference is that there's no equivalent poll of Labour members. There's nothing as bananas as this. No, that's true. But, but I think it's because only, only the cranks are left in the Tory party, apart from Ingrid. Thank you. On her own. <laughs> um, and maybe some other entries who I may have heard of that I'd better not mention in case they get outed. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Labour is a sort of broader church in terms of its membership. And so that's, you know, sort of people get balanced out. Whereas, and I think it's partly because, I mean, sorry to link this to much for change, but um, it, it's it's partly about, I think, that the reason there is as much smaller membership is sort of conservatism, there's sort of less passion behind it. I mean, traditional conservatism. There's nothing to get that excited about. Yay, fiscal conservatism, responsibility, tiny incremental changes. You know, no one's getting out of bed and going onto the street for that. Um and so you end up, obviously, with a much smaller membership. And therefore, it's much, much easier to take that membership over. But it does represent a large movement in the country. And we, we also can't ignore that. Because actually, looking at the polling on Remain versus uh, Leave, it has shifted. But it hasn't shifted as dramatically as I would have expected no, it to shift, considering what a shitstorm it's been, if we're, you know, if we're being completely honest. So... I think, and I also saw vox pops and questions from conservative members who were saying, actually, why why are you talking about no deal Brexit? This is madness. You know, there's a lot of business mm. SMEs being represented. So I, I'm not sure it's everyone, but no, it's no, certainly the big bulk of it. Um, one thing I want to mention before we go on is that during the debate, Stuart Hunt, Javid, and even occasionally gave all pledged to spend more money on public services. Uh, forgetting they've spent the last decade reducing money hmm. for public services. Um, and even Boris Johnson and Dominic Raab, RIP, didn't <laughs> defend austerity. And it's sort of, this has been, this was the big Tory project prior to, in the years prior to Brexit. Mm. It's probably what they, they, they stand for, yeah. aside from Brexit. And now, are they just pretending it didn't happen? Well, because the leadership debate is a terrific opportunity to, to press the reset button. So the pre, the the Conservative Party of the last nine years doesn't exist anymore. Whatever happens next is going to be, you know, they're probably going to be still saying the mess we inherited. Still, but doesn't matter. Nobody on. got hurt. Yeah. that's the important thing. Just and they'll carry on cutting public services. Died. They just won't present it in, in this sort of ideological fashion. You know, there was this very popular populist way of explaining the economy of oh, we'll tighten our belts and we'll all muck in together. And of course, it's been absolutely devastating for huge swathes of the country, particularly for women, because 86% of cuts of austerity fell on women. Um, and, and they haven't changed the ideological position that, you know, there needs to be a smaller state and that we don't need to, for example, invest in care services, invest in women's unpaid care work. Um, people can just pull themselves up by their bootstraps and if they don't, they're lazy. I mean, that's the that's centre of their economic ideology. So obviously they're going to be pro-austerity, but it's now become a dirty word. That doesn't mean they're not going to carry on passing those policies. They'll just call it something else. Moving on, on top of that YouGov poll about what Tory members are willing to destroy in order to get Brexit, it seems that British voters at large are less interested in compromise than ever. New research from YouGov for University College London and UK in a Changing Europe asked 1,600 people to rank Remain, Soft Brexit, the May Deal and No Deal in order of preference. The vast majority chose either Remain or No Deal as their top choice. Everyone hated the May Deal, God rest its soul, and those willing to compromise at all on Brexit add up to only about a fifth of the population. 
vacillating cowards. The purists, <laughs> which probably includes us, were very attached to their number one choice of either hard remain or no deal. And as the survey writers put it, no one is gagging for Common Market 2.0, Labour's customs union deal, or May's harder Brexit. So if compromises are too few or too hard to reach to make a difference, what does this bode for the future politics and the next general election when it comes? I think that, you know, and in fact, the study kind of bears it out. It says at one point that, that um, you know, compromise has been declining. And actually, I think in 2016, people were prepared to compromise. <clears throat> I was really angry about the result, but I would have swallowed a soft compromise Brexit. Yeah. And I think most people who voted Remain would have. It was the way that that Theresa May just repeatedly acted like we didn't exist and insulted us. Yep. Mm. Um, and the Daily Mail called us saboteurs. And, you know, there was all this horrendous rhetoric. And, and also the deal that May has pursued is not a compromise deal. It's an extremely hard Brexit. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, we've ended up saying, well, fuck you then. <laughs> We're going to remain because the other side has in no way compromised. And they were the ones in power. So they were the ones who had a responsibility to compromise if they wanted to bring the country along and wanted to bring the country together. You know, the result clearly presented a split down the middle country. And if May had had any morals and principles as a leader, she would have taken that result and said, I have a responsibility to bring the country together. This is how I'm going to do it. Mm. Instead, she pandered to the extreme of her party. And this is why we are where we are now. Basically, it's a woman's fault. (laughs) Um, it's as I said Daniel Hanan Um, well we talked about and actually the thing that we agreed on is I as you exactly Karen just said at the beginning I would also have have been fine I mean not fine but I would have been fine-ish with some kind of fairly Brexit light sort of scenario and that's what I think Daniel Hanan says that he was arguing for as well originally mm. um, so to him the no dealers and the sort of the the extremes on both sides um, he was saying that it's it's become polarised obviously but the, part of the problem that, with that is it's someone like with Daniel Hanan it's like you're no one's calling out the extremists on that side on the hard Brexit side on on, on their own side so and he was saying for him in, in order of preference now it would be no deal Remain would come after that and Theresa May's deal is in third place but he's a no dealer now because the whole point yeah. no deal was not on the table that was no, not what we thought the extreme was we thought the extreme was you have a hard deal Brexit. hard Brexit leave single market leave yep. the customs union now it's like no deal or WTO Brexit is Dominic Raab keeps trying to rebrand it. Um, Which isn't a thing. Which isn't a thing. It's like the new, that's the new sort of extreme. And therefore, leaving the customs union and single market is meant to be the kind of like wishy-washy compromise. And I think that makes me probably dig in more. Because it's like, don't you try and redefine what the compromise is. You can't, I mean, you can't underestimate the effect of, the effect of two years of a prime minister saying four times a day on TV, no deal is better than Mm. a bad deal. I mean, this was dispensed to the nation like a a pill four times a day after meals for two years. And it's impossible for that not to penetrate the nation's consciousness to some extent. Just to come back to the point about people being entrenched and is there any hope for compromising more, that statistic about only a fifth of people would be willing to compromise, I just don't think that's true. I think even at this point, like you say, we've become entrenched in our positions because we're, we're trying to we're trying to pull the debate towards a certain way. I think if there was a leader of the Conservative Party that went, look, 
for, for example, if freedom of movement was back on the table, but we're still leaving the EU, I would be, I would sign up for that. I, I would not, I'm not so hardcore Remain that I won't take anything but revoke yeah. now. There is room for compromise. But there the I Conservatives think... will never produce a policy, a version of Brexit that. But does if that. we keep, well, but then if there's a general election, then blah blah blah. Maybe so right. it's yeah, there is there is hope, she said with a question mark. There <laughs> isn't hope. I think we've established that over wow. the lifetime of this podcast. Wow. <laughs> Long-time listeners will remember a Donald Tusk Romantic Fiction Prize from a couple of months ago. Now it's time to announce the winner of another creative writing challenge, the Marc Francois Battle Action War Stories Prize. Here is the winner by listener Heather Welford, who wins a limited edition I've Been Up the Jungle with Marc Francois T-shirt <laughs> and mug set. Her winning entry is read by Ian Harrison. Captain Marc, the Frenchy Francoise, reached for his titanium-plated binoculars. He adjusted the strap around his bull-like neck. Slowly he opened a couple of slats on the Venetian blind and peered through. He was on a mission. A mission his father, enemy of Rommel, Hitler, Goebbels, Goering, and a whole bunch of others would, he know, have been proud of. There was no way Frenchy would permit a German to win this battle. He had observation skills, determination and fleet-footedness, surprisingly unaffected by a certain middle-aged porkiness of frame. This was the fifth morning Frenchy had slipped out of bed before dawn, taking up his post at the window, and today, surely, he'd be in luck. He trained his binos on apartment 57 opposite, watching for movement beyond the French doors. His chubby face broke into a self-satisfied smirk. Though, in fact, this was his usual expression. There, it was happening. Now! He grabbed his ginormous beach towel and raced through his apartment door, down two flights of stairs, and out to the poolside, and spread his towel out over the prime position sunbed next to the bar. Just seconds before Wilhelm Schmidt from Frankfurt, and currently of apartment 57, Solimar Resort, Malaga, got there. Victory! This week's special guest is the writer, campaigner and superstar feminist Caroline Criado Perez. Uh, Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men is an eye-opening book which, which covers a lot of, of subjects. Was there anything you discovered that kind of shed light on on the mess of British politics? Right. Some <laughs> <laughs> um, insight into, sort of, you know, the way the world is designed. Oh, God. I mean, I don't think we really have time to psychoanalyse Britain right now. Um, but I mean, certainly there were very interesting findings from the world of politics um, about how um, we don't produce evidence driven policy because partly because we don't have the data. We don't have the data on women. Um, you know, I mentioned that 86 percent of budget cuts fell on on women. Now, either you think that the Tory government hates women and I am open to that possibility or you think that they didn't gender analyse their budget. And they didn't have the data to show that if they cut these specific public services and made these tax cuts, they would be benefiting rich men at the expense of poor women, which is ultimately what they did do. Um, but there is a lot of interesting research showing that 
the presence of female politicians does make a huge difference to the money that gets spent and the policies that get passed. And this is from studies all across the OECD going back decades, um, showing, for example, that if there are more female politicians, more money will be spent on social care and education. Um, and uh, male MPs are more interested, um, I seem to remember, in defence. Um which is a huge shock to everyone, I'm sure. <laughs> Missiles! Um, <laughs> nothing phallic going on there at, at all. Um, uh, uh, yeah, but, the, but there was also some quite sobering, sad um, stats that I found around uh, male politicians and their likelihood of supporting women's rights bills. And they found that if it was, it was, if it was framed as human rights, uh, men were much more likely to support the same bill than if it was framed as women's oh, rights. Also, if there are too many women signed up to a bill, the male legislators are less likely to uh, sign up to it. Um, and then a really fascinating thing that I, that I found out, this was looking at America. And I think it's really interesting for us here in the UK as well, given the Tories have now had two female leaders and Labour hasn't had any. And that's obviously often thrown at Labour as, you know, a bunch of misogynists, which, of course, you know, they are. Um, but but uh, I, I, I await lots of lovely messages on my Twitter. Um, what they found was that because there are comparatively so few women in the Republican Party, the women who are there are able to function as tokens. They're not seen as a real threat to the men, and so it's okay to promote them. Whereas in the Democrats, um, there are so many women that they do represent a threat to the male power, and as a result, those women find it much, much harder to reach positions of leadership than female Republicans, which is pretty much, I think, what you could say for the Tories and, and Labour here. That's and I think that's a really interesting it? insight into yeah. you know why we do seem so reticent to elect a female um, Labour leader. Um, whether or not that sheds light on Brexit, I suppose it sheds light on Brexit in that Brexit is disproportionately going to be harmful to women. Um, and it's really not something that was spoken about in the run-up to the referendum um, or really ever since. And I would argue that is po possibly because there are comparatively so few um, female MPs uh, particularly in positions of leadership in the cabinet, for example. Um, and the reality is, you know, from medical data and research through to economic data and research, women are just much more likely to remember that women exist and therefore to do to sort of gender analyse their data, gender analyse their research, gender analyse their policies. Because um, the thing that really shocked me, the, mm. the, the thing I find myself reading over and over again, kind of refusing to believe that it happens was how often women are misdiagnosed mm. medically because their symptoms are often different to classic male symptoms, yeah. even by female medical professionals yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who still look for typical yeah. male signs. Well, it's partly the language that we use. So female heart attack symptoms are called atypical, even though they're absolutely typical for women. And in fact, the classic male heart attack symptom of chest pain is atypical. Yeah. You know, only one in eight women will experience that. But but we're so used to using the male body as the default and obviously the and also the you know the vast majority of medical research medical data has been on the male body um the male everything yeah have you come across the work of anna greer um she's a she's a sort of legal academic and campaigner in bristol mm. that does a lot of work about how 
the entire legislative system is meant to be objective, but is actually looking at everything. This rational point of view is always the point of view of a relatively well-off mm. white straight man yeah. looking at society and sort of judging yeah. what is reasonable and what's not. I so haven't. We operate sounds, within a system. She sounds right up TED my street. Talk with her. She's brilliant. So I, she sounds like what she's saying very similar to Catherine McKinnon, who makes very very similar point about. Um, the positioning of the white male point of view as the objective, as if you know they don't have an ideology. I and mean, this was something that was really, really interesting. Actually, both post-Trump and post-Brexit, in terms, you know, post the votes, was all these white male commentators, um, from Simon Jenkins to Mark Liller in in the US complaining about identity politics yeah. and saying, I don't have a tribe, I don't subscribe to all of this. Because um, you but, have everything. But, 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 but positioning white and male as not an identity. Of course it's an identity. It's, it's not just black people and women who have yeah, identities. Yeah. <laughs> like, we all have identities. And identity politics, you know, is politics. Mm. You know, people who voted for Trump were much more likely to be white... Um, and we're much more likely to believe in uh, white supremacy and male supremacy um, than than people who didn't, you know. So that was a form of identity politics. But because it's presented as just point of viewlessness, it gets to escape criticism. I, I don't know. I've always framed Brexit as, as a, a sort of masculine enterprise. Mm. If you can give something a sort of gender, a sort mm. of an idea. Because for me... Uh, and obviously it's not, that doesn't mean that it's only male men that want Brexit, obviously mm. women do as well. But the idea that, you know, women not... Although women have been changing their minds first. Really? Is that, is that sort of... Is that... Is there, there's evidence that... Yeah, yeah. Have... And it, I mean, it's actually really interesting. It happens... It happened with Trump as well. And it's hap- and it happened with the indie referendum. There is this trend of women tend to change their minds first on issues and, and then the men tend to follow, which might be the opposite from the way that you'd think it would happen. But I think it, you know, it's partly um, because women are, if you look at polling data, the unsure, don't know, tends to be dominated by women. They have a higher proportion of don't know, unsure, mm. and they are more prepared to say, oh, I don't really know, I'm unsure of this. Um, and therefore, it's kind of easier for them to change their mind because there's this less of a sort of blow to your ego of, oh, I might have been wrong. Well, watching uh, Rob on the Channel 4 debate, he was kind of the, the most absurd hard man posturing and also the hardest no deal Lion. He was constantly just talking, you've just got to walk away. And just also like a kind of really a tiny head. Like an, <laughs> but he's like, like an, he has a tiny head. But he's like a he's like a kind of you know, he's like the apprentice contestant yeah. that wants to be project manager first week. And he's just like <laughs> and all it was was you, you just gotta walk. Everyone knows yeah, about yeah, negotiations. Yeah. He just walks away. And it's like, how much you know because about negotiation? That's that's your only idea. And it was very kind of it was aggressive, as Roy yeah. Stewart called him out on it. It was yeah. like aggressively macho. Yeah. The whole idea of no deal. Fuck it, then I'm off. Yeah. yeah, and that idea of the whole thing, as we as we've talked about before, the, like the language around Brexit, the sort of war analogies, which by definition are male, masculine, because women didn't. I mean, they fought in the you know women play their part in the war, but actually going into battle with guns and shooting people, looking them in the whites of the eyes and bayoneting through the them through the heart. That's obviously a male area, an arena. I know, I've really got into it then. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> what a bit Mark Francois, but, but you know the language around it is 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 a masculine macho language, yeah. and that is what has annoyed me all the way through this debate. It's like well, you, it's your, it's men talking to each other mm. about who's the hardest and more mm. no dealer, and it's like well, what about the rest of us? Mm. You're you know you're de- deciding the fate of the, of the country, and I yeah I just well the, the, I've had enough. I want I think we should all move to New Zealand. 
because she's she's mm. really got this different yeah. form of leadership, yeah. which is just so amazing to see. It's, you know, to see it in practice of actually empathy and talking to people and trying to bring people together as a good thing rather than a sign of weakness. Um, and and actually, it's that's just not the way it is. That's just because we've got so used to thinking of these particular traits as male traits and therefore superior, and these traits as female traits and therefore inferior. And actually, which is the happier country? I would suggest perhaps right now New Zealand is a much happier country. Well, it's how you define strength. Is it a kind of like, is it sort of, you know, rigid and unbending? Mm. Or is it that, I'm not a metallurgist, but I know there's a thing, you <laughs> yeah. know, that there is a kind of in, in architecture, <laughs> there's kinds of metal that are stronger because they have this sort of flexibility. Mm, yeah. and there's all these qualities. No, nobody would say that um, the, the Premier of New Zealand is kind of, is not strong. Mm. It's just she's not, she's it was, not trying to be Dominic Raab. Yeah. Her reaction yeah. was so extraordinary, I think, for the entire world, because you looked at, you looked at what was going on, the you know, how she reacted to the attack, how she took action and gun mm. control, all of that stuff. And everyone thought there is another way. Mm. There is another way of doing things. Fuck me. There's another way of doing this. And then everyone forgot. Come well, on. thanks for that. That's hopeful again. <laughs> yeah, sorry. That's what we do. It's been that kind of week. <laughs> Caroline, last September there was a major launch for Women for a People's Vote, um, mm-hmm. which bring the sort of feminist case against Brexit, pointed out things like only 11% of Theresa May's negotiating team were women, 62% of women wanted a people's vote, women's rights and jobs are more at risk from Brexit. Um, do you think that that kind of feminist case against Brexit as a, as, as a sort of a distinct motivating force has has taken off? Um, I think it's never going to be the primary motivating factor for a huge proportion of the population. Um, I think the reason this kind of thing is important is, A, it's really important to get the facts out there for women so that they know them and have access to them easily. Um, And B, it's important to keep being that annoying voice in the corner that reminds this male-dominated debate that we're having that actually women exist and there are going to be repercussions for us because otherwise it just gets completely forgotten. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of the, the the position for, you know, that's the reason for having a pressure group like like Women for a People's Vote. Um, but, I mean, unfortunately, no, it's never going to be a driving factor. And that is because all the research shows, I mean, this is, I can't say definitively this is because, but all the research does show that women are much more comfortable fighting on behalf of other people. You know, we've been socialised to be caring and to care about others. And there is something kind of unseemly uh, about women piping up about how Brexit's going to hurt us more. Um, And so that's never going to be something that you're going to get a lot of women fighting on. However, if you get them on things like how it's going to impact on their children, on their grandchildren, suddenly that is a big motivating factor. Um, There was one poll, but I mean, again, this ties into, um, I think, what Women for People's Vote is trying to say is do gender analysis. And obviously what my book is trying to say, there was this really fascinating YouGov poll from, I think, last year or the year before, looking at, um, it was another one of those, would you still want Brexit if polls, but it was the population. And they found that the majority of over 65s did want Brexit still to happen, even if they or a family member lost their job. But actually, if you look at the data, men wanted it. 
women over 65 did not want it. And Mm. I believe there was a 20-point difference. But that wasn't reported. We just spoke about, oh, this is what Mm. the over 65s want. But actually, you know, again, you look at the women, you suddenly realise, oh, wow, it does. They do care if yeah. their kids lose their job, um, and and again, you know, so women for people's vote, I think, isn't just about trying to inform the national debate. It's also trying to say to Remainers, guys, there are goals to be scored here. To use Michael Gove's football analogies, you know, God. there are parts of the population that you are not reaching. That if you tie that polling together with the polling about women being more likely to change their minds first, speak to women because I really think that they are the key to winning this. Well, the women who've campaigned uh, against Brexit prominently, Regina Miller, Anna Soubry, um, and so on, have received a lot of sexist abuse. MPs that have been targeted for assassination, Joe Cox and mm-hmm. Rosie Cooper, who obviously that plot was thwarted, um, are women. Is Brexit making sort of political debate more misogynist, or is it just is is that just is that the way that it the way that it is the way it's been going? You've obviously had experience in the kind of Twitter trenches, going mm-hmm. back to the to the sort of you know the sort of banknote issue, and you had terrible flack. Does Brexit make it worse, or does it just sort of feed into the state we're in? Um, well, I think we are in a period of backlash, and Brexit is part of that. You know, we're in the middle of a culture war, and Brexit is part of that. Trump is part of that. The growth of misogyny is part of that, um, and. And it feels like the sort of dying gasps of this very, very angry animal um, that we are trying to trying to vanquish and is, you know, doing its absolute best to, to keep being able to survive. So I don't think that Brexit has caused misogyny, but I do think that the way in which it's been reported, the the way in which it's been debated, um, the way in which politicians have been speaking have given people permission to speak and act and engage in a much more aggressive way. Um, and inevitably, misogyny will be part of that. But of course, it's not the only part of that. It's also racism is part of that. Um, Anti-LGBT uh, sentiment is part of that. You know, Hate crimes have risen. Racist crimes have risen. Misogyny has risen. It's all risen and it's all part of the same toxic stew, which is essentially about trying to preserve the old way of doing things. And the old way of doing things was to have white men up at the top and everyone else below. Um, and so inevitably, everyone else is catching all the flack as this old order tries to reassert itself. Because it seems to me that there's this culture war aspect, which is obviously a lot of the point about culture wars is it, it focuses on very trivial things. And so if you're talking about the, the, the Brexit backlash, the populist backlash, and there's a way of talking about it going, you know, people have been left behind, economic problems, so on. Yeah. You've, you've had this experience of having a lot of flack literally over whose face is on a, is on mm-hmm. a banknote. It's, an, it's symbolically but it's important, it's but it about... wasn't a huge... It wasn't wrecking people's lives, and yet... But it's about much, much more than that. And it was an identity issue. Right. So, yes, on the face of it, it is completely ridiculous to send a woman a mountain of rape and death threats because she wants a line drawing of another woman on a piece of paper. Right. That is clearly on the face of it ridiculous. So there's obviously something going on underneath that. And, you know, again, it was... A, a sort of, ex- I mean, I felt felt it was an existential crisis for the type of men that were sending rape and death threats. You know, they felt that their very identity was under threat because their identity was so heavily invested in the idea that a successful man is a man who has power over women and he belongs in the public sphere and she belongs in the private sphere and um, is subjugated by me. 
Um, you know, that's obviously a very basic way of putting it, but that's ultimately what is at, at the heart of it. And so when you have women advocating for women to appear in public, you know, that threatens that identity. If suddenly women are able to do this, what does that mean for me? What's a man? You know, it's partly because we've sort of expanded what it means to be a woman over the past hundred years. But the model of masculinity has really remained unchanged. Um, and, and unchallenged. Not, yeah, and we've not, we've not sort of given anywhere for men to go. And it's just something that came out today that I thought was kind of interesting and sort of fits into this. Um, and, and I think it ties into the whole idea of the male as the default. So, you know, yet another study has come out showing that even when men and women have the same level of scientific knowledge, men rate themselves as much higher. And, <laughs> you know, this happens, you know, across all sorts of fields. Men tend to be more confident. And in the workplace, we're always telling women, oh, you should try and be more like men, you know, be more confident. No one is ever saying, maybe men are overconfident, and women are doing actually doing it all right. And what we should be trying to do is telling men to be more like women. Um, but because we're so, you know, used to having just the male as the unquestioned one and the female one as the problematic one, you know, that has ultimately bitten men on the arse a bit because it has meant that women have been able to progress and men are still stuck in this cultural straitjacket, which is terrible for their mental health and also ultimately terrible for everyone else. You know, it's part of, it's why you end up with people saying, oh, the environment doesn't matter and, you know, the no other people don't matter and social issues don't matter um, because men aren't allowed to care about other things. They have to only care about themselves and only care about making money. Um, because what I mean, I, I wonder what you're saying about these, these sort of your, your, men are not expected to, to, to sort of think more like women. Women expect to think more like men. Did you think, without wanting to be accused of Rory mania here, did you <laughs> did you I, did you find that interesting? Because you know, Roy Stewart, his, everyone else was asked what their weakness was, and everyone was mm. just like, "I'm just too, I'm too perfect, I'm too perfect, yeah. I'm too impatient for change." <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> well, sometimes when I'm being brilliant, people get in the way, and I guess that's. <laughs> um, and then Roy Stewart goes, "Well, there's there's things I don't know. There's lots of people mm. that know more about you know them more about science than me, or know more about oh. education than me, or know more about me, you know, and and I kind of need to listen to more people, and that." That seemed to me in, you know, whether it adds up to anything, I don't know. But it seemed to me quite a radical contrast with all the other politicians there, that it was a kind of that he did seem to be really leaning into this uh, more away from machismo and into mm. a more open, vulnerable uh, position. And I don't know whether that seems like something that maybe it'll take a while down the track, but, but that, that seemed like a promising. Yeah, it seems it does seem promising and you know I suppose it provides um, a little bit of hope for the future no he's not going to win uh, well hopefully by me saying that he will in fact win um, the <laughs> Tory leadership contest um, but you know he's kind of setting himself up for being the next Tory leader um, and you know maybe that you know we have this sort of path that we're going down where it's just get looks worse and worse, more and more macho, less and less um, care for experts and facts and data, less and less care for what we're actually doing to the world, less and less care for the future, for our children's future. Um, and he sort of represents, you know, perhaps, perhaps that this extreme on the right won't carry down that path because there is still some people on the right who aren't completely cuckoo. You might, I based on a focus group and the, and the result was women love it when you say... 
I'm sorry, and I'm going to listen to you. And so uh, the cynic in me is now oh, like, no. the cynic in me is now like, he's, he knows what he's doing. And he's strutting out and, and go, yeah. yeah. Thanks for the tips, ladies. Yeah, yeah, yeah actually, yeah. do you know what? <laughs> even, if it were, even if it is a cynical yeah. ploy, yeah. it's still so positive yeah, yeah, for this, yeah. the state of, no, of I love the debate. And I actually think yeah, yeah, that yeah. that is a net positive, whether or not he means and it. And I'm so You've come out and I said do it. actually love him. No, I don't. I don't love him. I have friends that fancy him. Do not leave him. He's no Dan Panan. God. It's the end of the show, and that means something else goes into the Brexit time capsule. Caroline Carade Perez, your special guest, what are you putting into our bomb-proof cache of things we'll miss if we ever leave the EU? Um, I am putting the precautionary principle in there. So the precautionary principle is about uh, carcinogens and chemicals, and the precautionary principle is the way the EU operates, which is basically... If something has been proven to be a carcinogen, you can't have it in your cosmetics, which I quite like. I think that's quite, you know, it causes cancer. Let's not put it on our face. Um, the US, by contrast, um, so the EU is, has banned, I think, 1,387 known car- carcinogens or reproductive um, uh, disordering chemicals. Uh, the US has banned 11. The US allows things like formaldehyde, asbestos, because they uh, proceed from the principle of, well, how how cancerous is it? You know, is it a big, lot of cancer, a little bit of cancer? Um, whereas the EU is like, no, just cancer's bad. Um, and and my, my concern is that when we no longer are part of a big trade block, we'll end up having to make, uh, have a trade deal with the US where, um, with Donald Trump's US, where they will bully us into accepting formaldehyde in our cosmetics. And I just don't really look forward to that day. Plus also um, the EU has really good labelling regulations and the US doesn't. So it's not even a case of, oh, I'll, I'll be able to choose the uh, free range cosmetics that don't have asbestos in them. You won't be able to because you won't know what's in them. So yay, great future ahead of us. I like the precautionary principle. Yes, I do too. I, I will, <laughs> You'll miss it when it's gone. Well. <laughs> uh, Caroline Kerdepres, thanks for coming in. Um, what can we do apart from showing up on the day, July 20th, March for Change? Is there anything that people can do to Yes, they can donate to the crowdfunder. I don't have a link for it, but maybe you could put the link in the notes of the podcast. <laughs> Donate to the crowdfunder and just sort of spread the word. Um, it needs to be a really big, charismatic march um, that really shows these Tory leadership um, uh, hopefuls, you know, because it's going to be just before the, the next Tory leader takes office, um, to show them that actually it's not about, you know, contest between hard Brexit and no deal. It's actually a contest between staying in the EU and leaving the EU um, because that is what over half of the country wants. That's good. Show up. We'll be pushing it relentlessly uh, as Very we glad to, hear to the date. It. We've had a deluge of new foreign language clips from our beloved Patreon backers, and this one's a first. It's in Russian from listener Thomas Hadland. Чтобы сказать, что это не слишком поздно, что мы еще имеем право передумать и отказаться от этого бессмысленного Брексита, который так вредит нашу страну, и остаться в Европейском Союзе. That means many EU citizens in the Baltic states speak Russian every day. I want to use this beautiful language to say that it isn't too late. We still have the right to change our minds, reject this pointless Brexit that is doing so much harm to our country, and remain in the EU. Thanks, Thomas. Remember to send us your European language clips. Make a short recording on your phone and email it to us at info at Romaniacs.com and we'll use the best ones. That's the end of the show. So here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and special thanks to our latest Patreon backers. 
Большое спасибо for me to Pippa Can, Josh Colley, Eliane Wigzel, Paul I. Leach, Shahila Perumalpilai, Simon Field, Sarah Ockrent, Clover, Andrew Bezik, and Dorothea Schaefer. And hello from me to Gary Cody, Dan Thompson, Beb Glazer, Kevin Roy Jackson, Kate Worthington, Peter Davis, Dominic Jackson, Tony Lloyd, Will Salmon and Per Franca. And finally, thanks from me to Peter Coxis, Robert Ferry, former guest Jason Hazley, performing monkey. Not him, Jason isn't a performing monkey, separate person. Lucas Hare, Simon Dowd, Jolyon Masculet, Kirsty Easdale, Nicholas Ingram and Richard Thompson. See you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ingrid Oliver and Alex Andreev. The producer is Andrew Harrison and audio production was by me, Sophie Black, at Soho Radio. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. 